or so, or maybe less, I'm, I'm not actually keeping track, going through the uh, learning how God's people Israel went through cycles of disobedience and obedience with God. Early in Judges, God makes clear that as his people Israel enter the promised land, they are to drive out the Canaanites from the land. If they fail to do this, God warns that the peoples will become a thorn in their side and Israel will suffer for it. Their failure to obey God in this task leads to a repeated pattern that if some of you have been here each week, it's a similar cycle. Uh, You could probably recite it to me. Um, The people abandon and forget God, disobey him, they don't remember him, they don't follow his commands, and so God lets them have what they want. He leaves them, he, he gives them over to their enemies, to the consequences of their actions, and after suffering at the hands of their enemies, Israel is awakened to their condition and repents of, uh, of their sin and their abandonment of God and his ways. God sends them a judge or a deliverer to rescue them from the people that are causing harm to them, and this happens over and over through various judges in, in the book. They're best understood, the judges, as deliverers, not judges that we think of today where somebody's in a courtroom determining right from wrong, sentencing people, but as a deliverer that God sends to rescue people from their literal enemies. Our passage today is the final verse in the book, chapter 21, verse 25. I will read it for us from the Bible, even though I have it written here as well. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Our time today will be outlined by two very unique and creative points. The first, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Second, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It's the first and second half of the verse, if it's not clear. So we'll start with point one. In those days, there was no king in Israel. So this statement is repeated a handful of times in the final chapters of the book. Uh, It helps us to see chapters 17 through 21 as a section in the book as a whole with a very specific message. The the whole book starts with decent judges, and they go downhill. Eventually, the last judge in the book, Samson, is not somebody to emulate at all or look up to. He's a violent womanizer who breaks his Nazarite vows to the Lord. Despite his reckless life and disregard for God, he's still used to deliver the people from the influence of the Philistines. After Samson, in chapter 16, there are no more judges, no more leaders. The evil and disregard for the Lord has gotten so bad that there aren't any more deliverers. The people are left to their own devices without a central figure to guide them. And then the author or narrator of the book of Judges is most likely writing during the time of the kings, later on, 1st, 2nd Kings, when a similar cycle was happening. In the period of the kings, evil kings would lead the people away from God. They would forget the Lord and his commandments and his law. And we see a, we see a similar cycle that's happened in the book of Judges with the kings. The author of Judges is most likely adding this note to encourage the people of his day that Israel had the same problem in the past when they didn't have kings. It wasn't the, the king's fault, it was the people. It's like the narrator is saying, look, even back then, when they didn't have evil kings, the people still chose to ignore God, and that spiraled into immoral living. People don't need an outside source to tempt them to disobey God. It's an internal one, an issue with the hearts of people. 
with or without a king to direct them, God's people quickly forget the Lord and end up living like the world. I want to be careful that you don't hear me saying that kings or governments are evil or useless and we should ignore them or fight against them. When we look at all of Scripture, we see that this is not the case. Certainly, government and authority can be corrupt, but the Bible in many places, especially Romans 13, teaches us that authority and government are instituted by God to punish evil and promote good. The problem of sin doesn't originate outside of ourselves. It's an inner corruption. No one can cause another person to sin. It's a hard thing to really wrestle with at times. Each person is responsible for their own sin. Certainly circumstances make opportunities to sin maybe more readily available, but at the end of the day, no one can point a finger at someone else and say, they made me do it. Godly, upright, and just leaders in churches and government are wonderful and deeply influence people for good. And Christians should be active to elect and ordain just leaders in government and in their church. However, no politician, no pastor, no law will make anyone right with God. Good laws help bring about justice and convict people of wrongdoing, but a Christian's hope should not lie in any political party or charismatic leader. Voting someone in or out of office doesn't bring about the heart change that we would like it to. Yes, we should strive to live in a just and fair society that's good for all people. Authority and government are God's means of restraining sin and punishing evildoers, but God's plan is not changed or thwarted based on which political party is in power. Something for us to think about if we feel that uh, things are hopeless or nothing will change until the right candidate gets into office. Question to ask ourselves. It can be tempting to feel like things are out of control when someone we disagree with gets elected or a law gets passed that we see as, as wrong. This is not the truth, though. Yes, we should stand up for justice and protection for all people, but if we're sinning because of politics, we're putting too much hope in people and leaders and not enough hope in God. If you curse and rage when your desired candidate loses an election or slander someone with opposing views, then you're putting politics in place of God. God is building a heavenly kingdom, not an earthly one. That kingdom extends far beyond any earthly office or government or nation. We rarely can see the big picture, though, and don't understand what God is doing. But despite things seeming out of control, we know that they're not. We can take comfort in the fact that even though evil may seem to win at times, death and sin do not have the last word. God is working in ways that we don't comprehend. This leads us to the second half of the verse. Point two, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Rather than having to be delivered from their external enemies, like the Philistines, the people, and the nations around them, the enemy in the last part of the book, this last section, 17 through 21, is Israel itself. Israel has become so much like the Canaanites around them that they're indistinguishable from the surrounding peoples. At the end of the book, the cycle we've seen throughout Judges has stopped. Israel is not repenting of their immorality and abandonment of God. They're content to live life on their own terms, doing what's right in their own eyes. Israel's neglect of God's commands has caught up to them. Chapters 19 through 21 show the complete depravity and corruption of Israel. It's hard to actually recommend reading the chapter, but it is part of God's word, so I would encourage you to do that. But it's a gruesome story of a Levite and his concubine 
in chapter 19, and it's meant to bring to mind the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19. Total corruption and evil and absolute anarchy. The key difference between the two stories is that Gibeah, where this evil occurred in Judges, is an Israelite town. It's not a pagan town like Sodom or Gomorrah. God's own people are committing these crimes and have become comparable and even worse than the nations around them. These final chapters show us just how bad Israel has gotten. The stories contain physical and sexual abuse, murder, civil war, kidnapping. The people have no regard for the Lord. This shows us again that Israel itself has become the enemy. There's no foreign people to drive out as they were commanded in the beginning, and they've become just like the world around them. Rather than being God's holy, distinct people who are supposed to be a blessing and light to the nations. Our lives matter to God. How we live matters. He's called his people, the church, to live distinctly different lives from the world around them. He's not calling his followers to live on compounds, separate and isolated, isolating themselves from the world, or to live with disgust towards people who don't follow him. Judgmentalness and superiority towards outsiders or non-Christians is the opposite of obedience. The kingdom of heaven is one of meekness and humility. And God has not called us as Christians to battle non-Christians or unbelievers, but to bring them to our Savior. Jesus has delivered you and, and me so that we will bear others' burdens, not cause them. Proverbs 14.2 reminds us that there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. Life is best when we follow God and obey his word. If we're honest, often we think that this is not the case. We feel like we're missing out when we choose to do what's right in God's eyes rather than our own. We must trust Jesus and trust his word. We should let this warning from judges be a guide to how we live our lives. Living with ourselves as king in whatever way seems right to us leads to our destruction. Following Jesus leads to human flourishing. Our creator knows in what environment we thrive. Living in a way that's right in God's eyes is how we flourish, whether we see it and understand it or not. We have a tendency only to see in the short term, failing to picture how our current faithfulness to the Lord will lead to good things for us in the future. We have a short-term mindset. It may not lead to our desired outcome on earth, but our God knows what's best for us in ways that we're unable to comprehend. If you've been living life on your own terms and doing what's right, in your eyes and disregarding God, confess your sins to the Lord. He's gracious. He's a gracious and merciful king who will forgive you if you humble yourself. If you think you're a good person or unaware of any sin in your life, it's probably because you're living life as your own king. You've created your own moral standards, and it's pretty easy to think of yourself as a, as a good person if you decide for yourself what's good and what's evil. But we don't, we don't have that place of authority. The creator of the earth, the creator of us, gets to decide what right and wrong is. <clears throat> in those days, there was no king in Israel. But these days, there is a king. King Jesus has ushered in a new kingdom. Matthew 4.17, he declares, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this king is unlike any other. He did not come with military might and force, to overthrow and overpower, crush his opposition. He established his throne and his kingdom by suffering and dying for his enemies. 
And we should model that in how we interact with our opponents or enemies. If you reject or ignore Jesus as your king and Lord, you're doing what's right in your own eyes. Jesus is the true deliverer, the true judge. He is able to do what the judges in our book could not. He can free people from their bondage to sin. Colossians 1, 13 and 14 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Will you come to Jesus and let him be king over your life? He invites you to come and obey him as Lord, to give up doing what's right in your own eyes. He will give you a new heart and change your desires to help you live in a way that's pleasing in his eyes. There will still be, as we spoke about this morning, the struggle between the flesh and the spirit, but he promises that if we come to him in repentance and faith, that he'll give us his spirit and give us the ability to desire and change our desires to want to please him. And it will be a battle, but he will strengthen us and help us. If you're living life on your own terms, rejecting some or all of God's commands, then give up your own self-rule. Jesus is a gentle and trustworthy king. Regardless of what you're doing, what you're hiding, or how you've lived, God's grace abounds. He is forgiving and merciful. There's nothing that we can do to out our way from God's grace and forgiveness. If you're not a Christian, I encourage you to read the Gospel of Matthew and learn about the type of king that we worship here, the type of king that Jesus is. He is the best king there is. There's no falsehood or corruption with Jesus. Christian, Jesus must be king of all areas of our life. There's no realm that is outside of his reach. We should consider what areas we're holding back from him. Where might we be keeping ourselves on the throne of our life, doing what's right in our own eyes? We should humble ourselves and ask someone who knows us well what areas of our life they see us as keeping ourselves as king. That's a hard thing to do and, and takes humility to honestly ask for the truth from someone about how you are. There's an abundant grace for our failures and sins. Your, your conversion, though, isn't the only time that you need to come to God in repentance. Our life is a life of constant repentance. If anyone has, has pictured themselves as a Christian who's made it and, and doesn't sin, like Will's testimony, if you don't drink or smoke or have sex, then you're a Christian and you're, and you're good. That they're dece- we're de- deceiving ourselves by hiding our sin from one another. Everyone here struggles daily with a, a number of things, but we want to, to hide that from other people to appear like we have it all together. But we don't. We must be on guard, as Raymond spoke this morning, and watchful that we don't drift away from the Lord as the Israelites did. As we grow and mature as Christians, we become more and more aware of areas of our lives that fail to live up to God's standards. And it can feel overwhelming and never-ending. But be assured that you have a deliverer who knows your pain, who's experienced suffering beyond anything we can imagine, and his burden is easy and his yoke is light. He is ever-present with you and will aid you in your battle against sin. The book of Judges has shown us this downward spiral of God's people as they abandon God and forget what he has done for them. In the book, we see the further canonization of God's people as a result of their failure to listen to his commands and drive out the Canaanites from the land. They become just like them. Let our, our church not be like the Israelites. Let's learn to 
from judges to flee from doing what's right in our own eyes and to look to our great deliverer, Jesus, who has made a way to cleanse his people from their rebellion and disobedience. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I just thank you that we have been able to spend the last year studying your word and judges. I pray that you would um, help us to learn from it, help us to remember the things that we've learned over this past year, and may our experience of your grace and mercy um, not have to come at the cost of this, this cycle that the, ju- the people of Israel went through. Lord, we have forgiveness and mercy and grace from you when we repent of our sins. You've given us, if we are in Christ, a new heart and a new spirit and have empowered us to live godly, upright lives, and you've changed our desires to live in a way that's pleasing to you. Would you help us? Would you help our church grow together as a family that can support and care for one another on this path as we follow you? Would you, would you bless us and help us and keep us? In Jesus' name, amen.